love displayed in your son. And we pray this day that you may open up our hearts to hear your truth preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of scripture. Good morning. Today's passage comes from Revelation chapter 12. If you are using the Blue Pew Bible, it is on page 1034. Today's message is from Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. Chapter 12 of Revelation. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us once more. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us that we just now read. 
We pray for your spirit to give us understanding and illumination into the mysteries of this text, that we might see its relevance to our lives, especially in this season as we celebrate the birth of your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this is a cherished time of year for my family. We love this Advent season. We love preparing for Christmas. We love the fact that carols are always in the air and lights and decorations have gone up in our house and just really wherever you go around this city, you see lights, you see decorations. Uh, we've walked around our neighborhood, a few other neighborhoods, uh, and we really appreciate everyone's effort to get into the holiday spirits. And, you know, as, as, we're, as we're looking at all of the, their decorations, it is encouraging that in our day and age, you still see a number of families putting out nativity scenes and trying their best to keep the focus on Christ. Now, just think with me about a typical nativity scene. It's going to feature, of course, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus there's probably going to be a donkey there because Mary is traditionally um, depicted as arriving in Bethlehem riding on a donkey. Uh, there's usually sheep in the scene because uh, we include the shepherds and the angels who gave the first birth announcement to them. Um, and typically, you're going to see three wise men bearing their gifts for the newborn king. But of course, that's where there's obviously some artistic license being applied because there is no way that those wise men were actually there to see the newborn king because they were likely coming from uh, Babylon or at least somewhere in that region. And so it would have taken them months to get to Bethlehem once they witnessed the, the Christ star in the, in the sky. And so Jesus was probably, you think about it, a year old by the time they arrived in Bethlehem. And I'm, I really doubt the family was still living in that cattle stall. I'm sure they found a, a room somewhere by then. So, you know, what, what troubles me more, though, is, is not what these nativity scenes add in, but really it's what they leave out. I mean, I think they're missing an animal. They've got the donkey. They've got the sheep. They've got you know, some camels for the wise men. You know, they maybe even have a, a barn cat and some mice. But they always forget the great red dragon. Like When was the last time you saw a great red dragon included in a nativity scene? And of course, that's the image that we do find in this morning's passage. Now, in case you weren't aware, Revelation chapter 12 is actually a Christmas text. It touches on events that started that very first Christmas Eve. And so if you've never heard about this, if you never knew that a great red dragon was a part of the Christmas story, honestly, I'm not surprised. I agree with Eugene Peterson's assessment in his book on Revelation. He grieves the fact that the, that the nativity story that we grow up with has been sentimentalized into coziness and domesticated into worldliness. Sentimentalized into coziness, domesticated into worldliness. We fill the nativity scene with cute little cherub angels and fluffy sheep, and we ooh and we ah at a well-lit and decorated nativity scene. But do we ever shudder and tremble at the sight? But as Peterson rightly reminds us, Jesus' birth excites more than wonder. 
it excites evil. What he means is that on that first Christmas, evil forces in the invisible cosmic realm were stirred up and agitated. A great battle commenced on that very day and lasted for a good 33 years until a final victory was won on a hillside during Passover, a day before the Sabbath. Church, if we allow the nativity to be sentimentalized into coziness and domesticated into worldliness, we will lose sight of the true meaning and the power of the Christmas story. Until the image of a great red dragon, and I would add to that, a woman clothed with the sun, until these images become part of the backdrop of our Christmas celebrations, I think we're missing something. And so this morning, what I hope to do through Revelation chapter 12 is to fill in some of those details. That's going to give us, I hope, a greater appreciation for Christmas and, of course, for the Christ child. Now, as you may understand, preaching from Revelation, it's no easy task. There's just so much imagery and symbolism wrapped up in this book, and you know, there are so many different interpretations of every single chapter and every single verse here. So I just want to you know, say in the beginning that there will likely be questions by the end of this message that are still on your mind, and there are going to be interpretive knots that we're just not going to have time to untangle. But I will do my best to help you see the big picture that chapter 12 is painting for us. And I really do mean that, to see the big picture. Because I really do believe that the best way to study the book of Revelation is to treat it like a great work of art. The imagery in this chapter is not merely to be interpreted, it is to be appreciated for itself. The imagery makes its own statement. It's like if you were to go to an art gallery to go look at some great masterpieces, Having a docent there with you, there to comment on a painting, yeah, that's going to help, right? It's going to help you get it, to understand what you're looking at. But those explanations can never replace the message that's being communicated in and through the painting itself. Just having, if, if, you, if your eyes were covered and you just had someone explaining it to you, it doesn't replicate actually having the covers removed and seeing the painting and taking it in for yourself. And so in the same way, I'll try to explain some of the imagery in this text. I hope it's going to help you understand better, but you still need to appreciate the evocative imagery for itself because it is meant to stir up something in you. Too often, I think we treat the book of Revelation like it's this mysterious code that needs to be unraveled, but really it's more like a painting a painting that still needs explanation, but really needs to be appreciated for itself. So to help you do that, to help you appreciate this picture being painted, I've divided this message into three portions, three parts. If the main idea is that a cosmic war is being waged by a great red dragon in a reality that is unseen to us, well then let's, let's unveil these events for all of us to see. And so we're going to start by considering, um, if you want to look in your, in your bulletin, there is an outline. We're going, to, we're going to start by considering first the war's long history. Then we're going to look at the war's climactic battle. And lastly, the war's enduring epilogue. So if we're going to examine 
the long history of this war, then we do first need to identify the combatants. Which war are we talking about? Well, it's a cosmic war involving a woman, a dragon, and a male child. So let me help you identify each of these key characters here. Let's start with the woman. Let's uh, go back to verse 1 of chapter 12, and let me read that again. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. So this vision of John begins with a great sign in heaven. Signs in the book of Revelation or signs in John's gospel are always pointing beyond themselves to a greater reality. And so what that means here is that we should not try to identify this woman with, with a biblical character like Mary or, or Eve, because John, in this case, wasn't seeing a real-life woman, just like he's, he's not going to see a real-life great red dragon in verse 3. He saw a sign. He saw a symbol. He saw a picture of a greater reality. And because of, of the way that this, this sign, this woman, is being depicted as being clothed with the sun, moon, and 12 stars, it suggests for us that what we're talking about here is Israel. We're talking about the collective people of God. Because in Genesis chapter 37, specifically in verse 9, in Joseph's dream, remember he, he, he had a number of dreams that he would share with his family. In one of those dreams, he recalls seeing the sun and the moon and 11 stars, which represented Jacob, his mother, and his 11 brothers. And so this great sign of a woman, similarly depicted, is reminding us of Israel, the people of God. But she's not just ethnic Israel. This woman here is really the spiritual Israel, the faithful community of the saints, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New. She represents Israel and the church all at the same time. It's very common in the Bible for the people of God to be portrayed as a woman, especially in the book of Revelation. The church is depicted as a bride. So this is what we're describing here. Now, in verse 2, we are told the woman is pregnant with child and she is in labor. The baby's coming and she's agonizing in pain. Now, this imagery of a pregnant woman suffering the birth pangs is also used throughout Scripture in many different ways, but in particularly to describe the suffering of God's people. And that really does fit the context of, of the rest of this book of Revelation where the church, the people of God, are under extreme opposition. And so these birth pangs represent the persecution that God's people are experiencing over the many centuries, particularly when it comes to the line of the promised Messiah. There is a, 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 a laser-focused opposition against the line of of the Messiah. This persecution finds its source in the next sign that John sees. That's found in verse 3. Let me read that again. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven on his heads seven diadems, crowns. So 
John here is pulling uh, from, again, a rich source of Old Testament history. That word for dragon is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to that great sea monster in Scripture known as Leviathan. You see, in ancient uh, Near Eastern literature, the sea was often used as a symbol for the unfathomable depths of chaos and, and disorder in the world. And so Leviathan, this terrifying dragon that rises from the sea, Leviathan was understood to be the very embodiment of evil and chaos. Now, what you also see happening in the Old Testament is that the prophets begin depicting certain nations and certain rulers that are in opposition to Israel as sea monsters. The, the, the prophets call them Leviathans. And so that's why you have in Psalm 74, verses 13 to 14, it, describing here uh, the exodus from Egypt, Psalm 74 says, you divided the sea by your might, you broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. So that's calling Egypt and Pharaoh the Leviathan. Uh, in Ezekiel 29 verse 3, Pharaoh is directly called there a great dragon. Or in Jeremiah chapter 51 verse 34, this time it's Nebuchadnezzar. And it's Babylon being represented as this great sea monster. So this great red dragon oppressing the woman represents all of the evil kingdoms and evil rulers of the earth that have persecuted the people of God over the centuries. Their dominion is represented by those seven heads and those ten horns. Horns represent strength and their seven diadems, their crowns, representing their earthly authority. So heads, horns, crowns, represent power and authority, and those numbers, seven and ten, they symbolize completeness. Here in this case, is referring to them being completely evil, completely wicked. Now, if you think about it for John, in his particular context, the dragon that he uh, is referring to could be a veiled reference to Rome. This could be a, a, a veiled um, a, a way of John speaking prophetically into his culture of his day as Rome was the great evil empire that was over them. But verse 9, if you look there, goes on to identify this great red dragon, not just with a kingdom in particular or an empire, but with an actual person. And in verse 9, this actual person is the devil himself. Look there. And the great red dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Now, right there in verse 9, that, that mention of the ancient serpent, ancient serpent, well, that is hearkening back, of course, to Genesis chapter 3, where another woman was also attacked by a dragon or a serpent. And sadly, in her case, she and her husband fell for the lies and cursed the ground and the generations to follow. But we read in, Gen in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that ancient serpent is told by God himself that from now on there will be enmity, there will be war between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. But now before we 
begin to think that this is leading up to some sort of epic battle between two huge armies of descendants. We keep reading on in Genesis 3.15, and we find a twist. It says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The twist there is the sudden shift from the plural to singular pronouns. He shall bruise your head. What God is doing is he is prophesying, he is promising that a champion, that a hero will one day rise from the offspring of the woman to defeat the great red dragon once and for all. Which, of course, relates to our text and to the third key character here, a male child born of the woman. He's mentioned there in verse 5, but notice with me in verse 5 how this time, John, notice how he does not call this male child a sign. The woman is a sign. The great red dragon is a sign. Those images point to realities beyond themselves, but this male child doesn't point to another reality. He is the reality. You see, you don't expect to find a literal woman clothed with the sun or or, or a literal great red dragon, but you can expect to find a literal male child born in the midst of a great war. Now, what child is this? It's the Messiah. It's the long-awaited promised king of Israel. And we know this because of how he's described for us in verse 5 as one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That right there is a clear reference to Psalm, cha- uh, Psalm 2, which is also known as a messianic psalm that predicts the coming and the victory of a future king. One in that psalm being described as the Lord's own son. And the psalm speaks of how his reign will encompass the nations. His reign will stretch to the ends of the earth. That's Psalm 2. Now, the great red dragon, he is well aware that these prophecies of a coming Messiah, like in Psalm 2, that these prophecies do not bode well for him. The words have been ringing in his ears ever since Genesis chapter 3. He shall bruise your head. He shall bruise your head. The devil was haunted by those five words for centuries. I love how Martin Luther puts it. Martin Luther says, God never told the devil who he would be. The devil lived in dread of every woman's son who was a believer because he never knew who he might be. And that's why throughout the pages of Scripture, the sons of Israel are constantly being targeted by the devil. If if you look at at verse 4, It paints a frightening image of the great red dragon crouched below the woman, waiting for her child to be born with hungry jaws wide open, ready to devour. And then, and and, and so we read in in, in the pages of Scripture, starting in in Exodus chapter 1, the devil inciting Pharaoh to kill the baby boys of Israel. Or even after they're settled in the promised land, The devil tempts Israel to adopt the idolatries of their neighbors, including sacrificing their sons 
to Molech and other false gods. And later on, when it's starting to look like David might be that promised child, well, then King Saul, who, remember, was filled with an evil spirit, tried a number of times to kill him. And then there was the wicked queen mother named Athaliah in 2 Kings chapter 11, who after her son, the king, died, she tried to kill the entire royal family. But the king's son, we're told, was rescued and hidden away until a later day. And then, and then there's the book of Esther and how she foiled a wicked plot designed to kill all the Jews in the vast empire of Persia. If it had worked, it would have snuffed out the offspring of the woman and the promise of a Messiah. And of course, that was the devil's plan all along. And then we get to the New Testament, and the great red dragon incites King Herod to issue the murder of every male child in Bethlehem two years or under. You see, he keeps going after the boys. He's trying to kill the he before he could grow up and crush him. The devil knows that his time is short. Now, this war's long history, it leads up to a climactic battle. This is, this is the second part of our message. Our text alludes to a climactic finale that took place in space and time, but, but like the rest of the chapter, it is depicted through layers of imagery. And so in verse four, it describes the dragon using his tail to sweep down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And whatever that's referring to, it gets picked up again in verse 7 where John sees another vision. And in this vision, he sees the angel Michael leading an an angel army against the, the dragon and his angels. And the dragon and his angels end up being defeated and being thrown down. Now, some are going to say that these verses are referring to the original war in heaven where Satan and his followers rebelled against God and they were soundly defeated and they were cast down, cast out of heaven and cast down to earth. Others would argue that what's being referred to here uh, is to a heavenly battle whose victory was won by an earthly event that was recorded for us in the Gospels. And so that's because if you look in verses 10 to 11, it seems to suggest that this throwing down of the dragon took place as a result of Christ and his shed blood on the cross. It was by the blood of the lamb. So this this climactic battle in this century-long war is found in the gospel story. Now, if, if you look with me in verse 9, Uh, Verse 9 mentions two ways in which this great red dragon has been attacking the woman, has been attacking the people of God for centuries. The first strategy is to use deception. Verse 9 says he is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Friends, the dragon is a perpetual liar. Only falsehoods and and, and half-truths can be found on his lips. And like with Adam and Eve, he attacks with pernicious lies, trying to get people to question the goodness of God's word or to question the the, the reality of his love for them. So he approaches you with a friendly face, telling you that you're not that bad and God's not that mad. 
So, you know, don't feel bad about indulging in that sin. Come on, it's, it's only natural. It's totally understandable. But the instant he gets you to sin, he rips off his friendly mask and he reveals a terrifying accuser. And that's the second strategy in the devil's attack. He uses accusations. The name Satan itself means accuser. And in verse 10, he's called that. Verse 10, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So friends, let's not take the, love, the devil too lightly. He's often depicted in modern times as this, you know, this little red guy in, in really tight red, you know, red, you know, red tights, you know, holding a pitchfork, kind of sitting on your shoulder, whispering naughty thoughts into your ear. That's exactly how he wants you to see him because he doesn't really want you to fear him or to take him very seriously. You feel like you can just kind of flick him off whenever you want. But the reality is, he is more like that great red dragon who can't wait to devour you if, if he can just get God to declare you to be guilty and condemn you to an eternal hell. And just like any good lawyer, he's built a strong case against us. He knows our sins. He knows God's law probably better than us. And he is totally right when he accuses us of falling short. But the good news, friends, the good news that's found in this text, specifically in verses 7 to 11, is the repeated refrain of how this dragon has been defeated. He has been thrown down. That phrase is repeated five times, thrown down, thrown down. And in verse 11, there's that definitive statement of being conquered by the blood of the Lamb. Now, now granted, this climactic battle is not recalled for us in any detail here in chapter 12. But if you look in verse 5, it is alluded to in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but he, and this is it, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Okay, so let me flesh this out for you. Picture this with me. Just picture the great red dragon crouched and waiting for the Messiah's birth. He kept guessing wrong and, and, and failing to snuff out the messianic line in centuries past. But now he has a good feeling about this baby boy being born in Bethlehem. So he launches his first attack through King Herod's wicked edict. But of course, he misses. And so he waits years later to tempt Jesus, now grown as a man in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. But unlike Adam, Jesus doesn't take the bait, and he remains true to his father's will. So what the devil does is he goes to the townsfolk of Nazareth, and he stirs them up, and he, and he incites them to try to throw Jesus off of a cliff, but he just walks right past them unscathed. Later, when Jesus and his disciples enter the region of the Gerasenes, Satan hopes that his evil spirits, collectively known as Legion, will attack and will tear Jesus and his disciples apart. But instead, Legion is cast out by a simple word off the lips of Christ. And so as Jesus goes from town 
to town in the province of Galilee, all of the dragon's wicked angels are shrieking and they are fleeing his presence. And so the devil, realizing that he's losing his army, he begins to turn to the religious leaders of the day to, to, to make them allies and, and, and all the governing authorities and even a close companion of Christ. And he twists their hearts to get them to resist and oppose and even betray the Son of God. And finally, he has Jesus right where he wants him, in his grips, under Pilate's jurisdiction, in the crosshairs of the Sadducees, with the crowds stirred up chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And on the hill of Calvary, unbeknownst to anyone present that day, the great red dragon climbed his way to the peak, and he stood behind a man hanging upon a cross. He raised his mighty chest. He bared his fearsome teeth and opened wide his terrible jaws and devoured that man whole. The sky darkened. The ground quaked. The demons cheered. The devil thought that he had won. But shortly after, as he went on his merry way, the dragon's belly began to rumble. Something was stirring inside. And on the third day, just before dawn, the Son of God burst forth from the belly of death, alive and well, and was caught up to God and to his throne above. Friends, that word caught up there in verse 5, it can be translated as snatched up, and it conveys the sense of taking something or someone suddenly and vehemently. Isn't that a fitting description of the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord Jesus? That is how God thwarted the dragon's so-called defeat of the Messiah. He snatched him right out of his belly. And to the devil's dismay, he finally realized that Jesus' death, what he thought was his victory, that Jesus' death was not his own death. He was dying a death actually in the place of others. He was dying for sin. He was making atonement by his blood. And by that sacrifice, he actually defanged the dragon. He disarmed the devil. He took away his one weapon, the only thing that can truly hurt us. Jesus took away sins. And so we read in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Listen here. God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him, in Christ. So friends, as I've been recalling this ancient story, I do hope you are seeing that you actually have a part in it. Like you are a character in this story. 
you're either still in the dragon's grasp or you've been freed by the Christ child. The devil either still has a compelling case against you and he is accusing you day and night before God or his case has been dismissed for lack of evidence since all your trespasses have been forgiven. Your record of debt has been canceled having been nailed to the cross of your Savior. So I ask you, what's your place in this story? Friend, if you want your sins forgiven, if you want to be saved, the beauty of the Christian faith is that God doesn't ask you to earn it. He doesn't expect you to prove yourself worthy. You don't have to bear a heavy burden or or, or climb a mountain or or slay a dragon to win a prize. Because don't you see? Christ has already done all of those things for us. You are asked to believe. To believe in that. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ's death and resurrection and you will be saved. That, my friends, is the beauty and the promise of the gospel. So we've considered the war's long history. We've studied its climactic battle. Now let's conclude by looking at the war's enduring epilogue. The climax of the story was, of course, the death and resurrection of the Messiah. That's when the devil, the dragon, received his fatal wound. The decisive battle was won. Ultimate victory is assured. But the story is not over. There's an enduring epilogue that's ongoing. In fact, we are still living in this epilogue. It's important to remember that John was writing his book to churches that were living in a time of of great persecution. And so his point in chapter 12 is that the ongoing suffering of God's people is not a sign of Satan's victory. Rather, it's a sign that the dragon realizes that he's already been defeated by the Christ child, and now he's just lashing out in anger. Since he can't get at the child because the child has already reached his throne, according to verse 5, the dragon has now turned his attention to the woman, to the church, to us, the people of God. So look at verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This whole same idea is repeated for us later in verses 13 to 14. There it says, When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had, been, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Okay, let's just quickly consider these, these numbers that are being thrown out here. Now, if you can do a little math with me, I know it's Sunday morning, but just do some math here. 1,260 days, that equals 42 months if you are counting 30 days to a month, which is what the ancients did. Now, that equates to three and a half years which is represented by that phrase you find there in verse 14, a time and times and half a time. That's referring to three and a half years. And so we're we're talking here with all three of those different references to the same length of time. But here's where I would advise not taking these numbers literally. 
42 months or 1,260 days is mentioned actually earlier in chapter 11. If you just look at chapter 11 and verses 2 and 3, there's a reference there to the time of the Gentiles, to the time of the nations. This is a period of time in which the nations, this is referring to the unbelieving world, will seem to be dominating the world, but the church during this time will be protected and empowered to witness for Christ even in the face of opposition. And so these 1,260 days, they're symbolic, symbolic of the length of church history from the first to the second advent, whenever that's going to be. But regardless here of, of how you're interpreting these numbers, really, though, the emphasis is not on the length of time and trying to figure out when it's all going to happen. The emphasis here is on the protection and nourishment that the church is going to receive from God himself. That's the emphasis here. So God is going to protect his church. But again, I must warn you, even though you have that assurance, please, you must not take the devil lightly. Yes, he's been mortally wounded, but he has not given up the fight. His days are numbered, so think about it. He knows he has nothing to lose. His bite is still deadly, and his tail can still do damage. And so, Christian, you have to keep up your guard. He's still going to wield his power of accusation. He's going to try to even accuse God's people. Now, on this side of the resurrection, he knows the devil's not a fool. He knows that God's verdict in heaven has been delivered. He knows there's no opportunity to accuse us in the courtroom of heaven anymore. And so that's why he's going to focus all of his attention on the courtroom of the human conscience. He knows he can't change the fact that God is now for us who are in Christ and that his love will never leave us, but the devil is going to do his best to deceive us, to make us think those realities aren't true. So Christian, do you, do you realize that the devil will attack the courtroom of your conscience and try to make you feel like there is no way God could be for you? There's no way that God could ever use you in his plans for his glory. You sin yourself way too far out of his love or at least out of any chance of being of any good use to his kingdom. That's what he's going to tell you. But those are lies. Those are all lies. And you need to see them for what they are. It's the devil's schemes. But like it says in verse 11, this dragon, how do you respond? How do you conquer? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. By testifying to the truth of the gospel. And so church, that means the only way to counter the devil's deceit is to speak and to walk in the truth of the gospel. And that's why, that's why we do this every Lord's Day. We're always gathering together as the church to sing the gospel to each other, to confess our sins together in light of the gospel, to pray the gospel deep into our hearts, and of course to sit under Christ-centered gospel preaching. It's because we know we are so prone to forget and quick to believe the lies. 
And that's why we need, we need each other. We need this church. We need this time of gathering to remind ourselves that the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser has been thrown down. The great red dragon has been defeated. The Christ child has won. The woman clothed with the sun will soon stand before her bridegroom and the church at war will soon be the church at rest. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this Christmas hope of knowing that the battle is won, that Christ is the victor, and by his grace, we are on his side. Oh, Lord, keep us attentive and alert as we wait the day of your son's return. We pray this in his name.